So if you imagine yourself riding a bicycle, it's always important to keep your eyes ahead, right? As you're riding your bicycle, you don't want to be distracted by the things that are so up close to you, your body, because it's possible that if you keep your eyes on the things that are close by you, it'll cause you to lose balance and you'll, you'll trip. So again, I'm giving this as an illustration. When you keep your eyes ahead, chances are you're going to be able to ride much more smoothly um, and not looking at the rocks on the side or the texture of the ground um, on those little particulars. When you do that, you fall. And the same thing is true in our Christian walk. Uh, we actually do best when we set our vision on the goal and not on all the obstacles. I think sometimes as we walk our Christian faith, what grabs our attention, what takes up all of our emotion, um, what gets a hold of our mind often is those smaller things that sort of get in the way as we strive to the goal. Uh, so similar, similar analogy there, I think, that, that works well with the Christian walk. We actually do best when we set our vision on the goal, not on the obstacles. Just like Jesus, right? We see Jesus as being the example, where the scriptures say that he who for the hope set before him endured the cross. So he had that vision, he had that goal, he moved toward it, um, and nothing distracted him from that. But... Today's class isn't really about the goal this time. I do want to zoom back in closer to some of those particulars, okay, um, that can be an obstacle if we don't pay attention to them. Um, Today, it's about the rocks on the side a little bit. Uh, Because while our minds shouldn't be focused on them so much, it's still important to know what rocks are there in the way, what obstacles can be there in the long run. So it's not that you look so close that you keep your whole, you keep all of your attention on those things. But as you look toward the goal, as you look ahead, kind of knowing in advance what some of those obstacles are. Okay. Uh, The reason why we have an entire Sunday school class on suffering or suffering well, rather, is because of how easily it is to suffer poorly. Uh, So today we'll spend uh, some time thinking through some of the most common ways that we can suffer poorly. And the rocks on the side of the trail is, is sort of the analogy there. Suffering has, a way to be tempt, or suffering, suffering has a way of tempting us to lose sight of what God is really like. So when you suffer and you suffer wrong, a lot of times what our reaction is when we're suffering wrong is to begin to attribute things to God that are not true. You start to change the way you feel about God, you start to change the way, change the way that you think about God. You start to minimize one or more of God's attributes. In other words, when you suffer poorly, what's at the root is a deficient view of who God is. So even people whose theology is correctly fashioned in their minds can experience suffering in the wrong way because of their practical theology, right? The view of God that actually drives their hopes and fears and actions oftentimes is false. Now, I want us to look at Peter. So if you have your Bible, um, you can open up to 1 Peter. You can just leave it open there. We'll, we'll, we'll be going back, back and forth in that book. Now, in Peter's letter there, um, 
It's a letter to a group of Christians that are under pressure. And Peter exhorts them. You'll see it in uh, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so one way to be watchful is to be aware of unbiblical responses to suffering. And think about the last time you went through a hardship or a, a trial that kind of stands out. I know for, some, for a lot of us, we go through trials every day. But think about the, the last big one that, is, that was very significant. Think for a moment of how you dealt with it. And I, I can just be honest and open. Uh, a lot of times when I suffer, um, sometimes I fill my mind with distractions. You know, I'll, I'll just distract myself so much till I get to the other side of that, um, that, uh, that season or, or that, that suffering moment. I'll distract myself. I'll try, to, I'll try not to keep my mind so much in it. Um, I'll try to think of other things. And I'm not saying that as a, as a good thing. Uh, but I've seen myself do that. Uh, I, I sort of avoid it or I find, my way to, I find a way to not think about it. Take a moment to think about how you suffer. Um, how do you deal with it? Does it draw you away from God? Does your suffering cause you to say, well, you know, I normally live in a certain pattern or rhythm in my relationship with God. You know, I pray morning and evening. Um, I listen to uh, hymns or psalms. I read something. But when I begin to suffer in a significant way, I push all that aside and I can't really connect with the Lord. Is that how you suffer? I want you to think about how you suffer. Again, one, one, one way to be watchful is to be aware of unbiblical responses to suffering. Okay? The more we do, the more equipped we'll be to respond in a God-honoring way. And so this morning I want to talk about five unbiblical responses to suffering. And we'll interact. I'll, I'll open up the floor so that you can kind of speak from your experience on how you relate to some of these, these points. But let's look at the first point. You can see it on the handout. The first one is, uh, and this is the way that he, I say he, but uh, I mean, this is the way that Capitol Hill kind of puts it in their worksheet. Um, the stiff upper lip. So uh, this is a reaction to suffering that often Christians um, express. And he says, the stiff upper lip, which, which he means God doesn't exist. Uh, self-reliance as a practical atheism. Now, again, this is written for Christians, so this isn't saying that there's an absolute um, unbelief or an, a place in the midst of your suffering that you arrive at an, at, at an absolute unbelief uh, when it comes to God. But he words it as a self-reliance as practical atheism, which is basically saying that even though you are a Christian and you do believe in God, in the midst of your suffering, you begin to act like an atheist. You, you, you ignore God. You start to live or you start to act or react as if God is not there. You shut him off in your mind and you become more self-reliant. I've seen myself go through that in the midst of suffering. I just can't... I, something in me feels like 
it's God's fault because he's sovereign, and so he's allowing these things to happen. So even though I know that's not the right doctrine to believe in, right, that it's God's fault, I know that cognitively, but my heart, my emotions, my will, um, even though I, I try to convince myself that that's not the case, my heart and my will and my desires start to act that way or express itself in, in that way, where it's almost in the back of my mind that God is responsible for all my suffering. So you begin to rely on yourself uh, and you begin to practice sort of uh, uh, a self-reliant um, practical atheism. So again, our first unbiblical response is in a sense an atheistic response, uh, perhaps surprisingly. It is extremely common among Christians, maybe even especially common among Christians. It is the grin and bear it strategy for dealing with suffering, the stiff upper lip. Do you see why it is the strategy of the atheist? It says that in a time of great difficulty, I'm going to move forward under my own power as if God didn't exist. I'm going to tell people I'm okay because I'm not the kind of person to ask for help even. My strategy is all about what I'm going to do. And in those moments, I become a practical atheist. To take a really mundane example, we've probably all been in the car when the driver, usually the guy, is lost, <laughs> uh, but refuses to stop and ask for directions. Everyone is left miserable, and why? Why? Because he's proud. That's not me, though. This is an example. I always... Just kidding. Uh, pride enters into my heart, even. Um, I don't want to ask for directions. I prefer to be lost than to humble myself and to feel the embarrassment of not knowing where I'm going. There's something about asking for help that is humbling ever since Adam and Eve gave into the temptation that they could be better off if they were God. Independent, self-relying, deciding what is good. Ever since then, humanity has been infected with a reluctance to admit that we need help. Now, there are people that are always asking for help, and that doesn't mean that they're humble. <laughs> that pride can be there too as well. It might be like trying to overprove yourself. That can be a thing too. Um, but aside from that, focusing more on the, uh, the aspect of not wanting any help at all, uh, a self-reliance, I think that's something that often happens in your heart when you suffer wrongly and you, beget, you, you begin to uh, kind of push God out of your mind. Um, and I think this happens even when you don't pray. Uh, if you go through your week, if you go through the day, and you're not keeping short accounts with God, um, what's going to happen to you naturally is that you're going to be more inclined to become a self-reliant person. If you're not constantly before the face of God in the sense that you yourself are, are going to the throne of God in your prayers, um, you begin to live and act, and you, you're going to see patterns of that, even though you may not think that that's happening. A lot of times it happens, and you didn't realize it happened. But looking back, you'll see that your, your day was spent without you checking with God. Um, and that's important. But specifically in the midst of suffering, there's that tendency too to ignore the existence of God. Now, two thoughts on how to escape from this unbiblical response. Number one, humility, right? That's self-evident there. I think that's, that, that's, uh, that's so basic, but it's so important. Humility. 
Self-reliance is a form of pride. And not surprisingly, Scripture's remedy for pride is humility. Think of Peter's words to suffering Christians. You see this in 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 6 through 7. Actually, can someone read that passage? Amen. Yeah. So uh, Peter here, he knows, he knows the, uh, he knows the church that he's dealing with, and he recognizes that, uh, with everything going on in their particular context, there's still that need to call his congregation or those people to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, <clears throat> that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. <clears throat> and we need to remember that truth. God cares for you like he cares for his son. I think that's, that's, that's a helpful thing to keep in mind. Oftentimes we, we think, well, how much does God care about me? And you start to think about how your day went. And if you slipped into sin at some point, or you, you start to recognize how unworthy you are of his love, <clears throat> you forget the truth that still stands in the midst of that is that God still cares about you, not because of all, your, all the things that you do throughout the day, but because you're in Christ. And trust me when I say God cares about Christ. Um, and if he cares about Christ that much, you who are in him, he, he cares for you equally. <clears throat> so keep that in mind. And uh, we receive the, the benefits of uh, our anxieties being calmed when we come to the Lord. And that's the thing that we always forget. In the midst of suffering, especially when it's heightened to a certain degree, you're not thinking, oh, let me stop in the middle of what's going on around me and let me go pray. That, that's rarely the response. But it's important that we begin to practice that. And it's not going to become second nature to you until you make that a habit. Um, you know, I, I know that the principle of faking it till you make it is horrible. You should never fake anything. But there's some truth there in the sense that, and I'm not asking you to live falsely, but what I'm saying is if you begin to practice these things, even if you don't feel it, you begin, you begin to allow yourself to get into certain habits um, that will, will help you when the time uh, comes where you, you need to be sincere and authentic. So all that to say is practice in your own life, separating yourself, at least mentally, from the situation that you find yourself in that's filled with anxiety and trouble. Go before the Lord and ask him to help you with your anxiety. Ask him to help you with your, um, with your trouble. And you'll see that the Lord will give you comfort in the midst of that. Now, this verse, the verse that I just read, uh, tells us three things. Number one, first, recognize self-reliance as pride, which should be confessed as sin. If you're a self-reliant person, uh, sort of the independent person, you, you can do things on your own. You don't need someone. I hear it all the time uh, in my workplace, I don't need a man. Um, <laughs> I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> uh, just joking, but... Um, the same thing, same thing with men. A lot of men uh, feel that they, they can, that, that they, they're all that they need. Same thing with women. Maybe they think that it's all that they need. Uh, this is 
This is across the board. This is a human problem. And um, we need to recognize that as pride, and we need to confess that before the Lord. Second, recognize God as the mighty Savior and not you. Our Christian lives need to be less dependent upon us. I know when you read um, in the New Testament and you see uh, the, the indicatives and the imperatives, that can often be very confusing and it's hard to balance those things. But when you read the New Testament, you see that it, it, any instructions for believers, it, a lot of times it begins first with what Jesus Christ did and then who you are in relation to what Christ has done. And then there's that therefore. And that therefore is the uh, imperatives. Right? Those are the things that you're called directly to do. So, for example, Paul tells you, you know, do this, live this way, love your blank. Uh, those things need to be done in light of what Christ has already done. If you emphasize so much on the imperatives and you forget what Jesus Christ has done for you, you forget the grace that we have in Christ, you forget that the only way you can do those other things is when you're connected to the vine. When you separate that, you start to get into a, a kind of like self-reliance in the name of Jesus. So you think that you're doing things unto the Lord, but you're doing it in a self-reliant kind of way. Uh, and that's, where, that's sort of the root of legalism. That's the root of um, just false religion. That's also the root of exhaustion, and that's the root of uh, spiritual you know, weariness. But when you do things out of the, an overflow of love for Christ and out of uh, dependency upon his spirit, when you do things in a way that uh, is an overflow from your communication and communion with God, it, it's a lot easier and it's a lot more sincere um, and it, it, it bears fruit where the other way around um, would not bear true spiritual fruit. So don't put the uh, cart before the horse, right? Always remember that everything that we do is always in light of the grace that we receive in Christ. Third, uh, and again, this is all under point one. So I know I'm on a sub point number three, but this is all under point one. Um, there's a demonstration in that passage that we read that, that shows that humility, uh, or it, sorry, let me rephrase that. We demonstrate that humility, we demonstrate this humility by casting our cares on Christ. Uh, so humility is a requirement, but we, we express that humility by calling upon Christ, calling upon um, grace from, from the Lord and not being self-reliant people. Question is, do you have it all together? And the answer to that is no, we don't. And when you come into the Christian community, and you come and you fellowship with other believers, and your, uh, your way of being, the way that you interact with other people, is that self-reliant or that, um, that sort of that person that um, doesn't rely on the grace of God, that's going to show. 
and that's going to hinder your relationship with uh, other believers in the body. Because the one thing that we have in common is the grace that we receive in Christ. The thing that we don't have in common is like sinless perfection. And so when you come and you gather with the body of Christ and you think, oh, I'm going to show my, my sinless perfection um, or what you think is sinless perfection, and, and that's going to be the unifying factor among the body of Christ, you're going to see that there's going to be a clash. You're not going to, be, you're not going to have genuine fellowship. It's only when all of us work together in um, expressing humility and dependency on the gospel that we start to harmonize. Um, anything, anything that's not that, it's just going to be a big competition. I'm going to show how I'm doing good in my household, and I'm going to show how I'm extreme, very disciplined. Other people are not going to be able to connect because they're utterly dependent upon the grace of Christ. And so we have to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is not sort of a works righteousness kind of attitude, but it's the grace of God. So we can't, we can't create a competitive kind of atmosphere in the church. We have to create um, an atmosphere or an environment of people who depend on the grace of, of Christ. Does that make sense? Is there any, any questions on that? Anything that's not clear? Okay. Do we have it all together? No. That's the admission you made when you became a Christian. Is temptation hard? Yes. Jesus certainly thought so. Do we showcase God's glory when we stubbornly try to deal with things on our own, in our own power? No, we don't. And quite often we end up as burning wreckage as well. Subpoint number, I don't know, I, I'm lost with the subpoints there, but we're still in category one, okay? Uh, consider the goals for your suffering. <clears throat> Sometimes it can be quite difficult to both depend on God and to be responsible, okay? So you have a bad back. There's a lot you can and should do, right? Go to the doctor, go to the therapy or the therapist. You can stretch, you can avoid lifting heavy things. And in doing so much, you might wonder what it really means to depend on God. How does that actually flesh out in your everyday living? One thing that can help is to consider God's goals in this suffering. Think of Peter's words about trial um, in 1 Peter 1, where he says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, how can you do a lot to help your back to heal? Okay, and again, this is just a, an example of how to think through, let's say you have back pain. Can you refine your own faith? Can you make sure that your faith endures to the end in the midst of your pain? Can you make sure that your faith results in praise to God? Well, you can't in and of yourself. Whenever we take a step back and see God's goals for our trials, we recognize how powerless we are to achieve them, no matter how many temporal things may seem within our control. Consider God's goals for our suffering, or considering God's goals for our suffering is a good way out of self-reliance. So 
in the sense of uh, the example of the pain in the back, uh, we're called to be responsible. Ice the back, but remind yourself how little control you have over the things that really matter in this trial. In other words, if you have a physical pain, of course, you're called to live responsibly, to act on it, take your medicine, put an ice pack on it if it's, let's say, a back pain. But there are spiritual things that are underneath that, that require God to empower you by his spirit and give you the grace needed so that in the midst of that suffering, you can praise God. And this is where self-reliance is important. Uh, excuse me, self-reliance is a sin and reliance upon God is the answer to that situation. Um, and again, just stressing prayer, right? Uh, if you are going through physical pain, do what you have to do, take your medicine, um, you know, put an ice pack on it. But always remember that there's a spiritual reality behind there, uh, behind that. And that spiritual reality is how your heart is reacting towards God. And um, this is where you need to depend on God to give you the strength that while you are suffering physically, you, you can praise the Lord in the midst of that suffering and the end result will always be God being glorified. Don't fall back into a practical atheism. Don't, um, in the midst of your suffering, don't not pray, but, but seek the Lord's face in the midst of it, okay? Let's go to the second, um, the second unbiblical reaction to suffering. Second one here is escape running to false gods. I think that's the second one here. Yes, escape, running to false gods. Now, if you remember the beginning of my uh, teaching here, I mentioned one of my own personal struggles as it relates to suffering. And it was, or it is, um, the habit of trying to distract myself in the midst of the suffering with, with things, sometimes with things that are not worthy of my attention. So I'll give you a couple of practical examples. If, I, if I'm having a hard time at work, I think the way, that I, I, the way that I have in the past dealt with that is to listen to music, um, in a sense to zone out and not, not really pay attention to the struggle, um, but, but to but to get my mind somewhere else. And so the way that I would do it is I would listen to music, uh, maybe watch something on YouTube, um, and the result of that would be that my day would waste away. It would just, I would just waste my day. I wouldn't think about anything spiritual, and that was the way that I was coping with my, with my stress. But what's behind that, I think, is idolatry. I, I, what, what's really happening there is instead of going to God who has the answers for my suffering, I went to other gods, right? Now, I may not be thinking that at the moment. I'm saying, well, I'm going to listen to this, this new record, right? This new album. And that's just going to ease my pain. Well, what I did there, practically speaking, is that I went to a false god that... Um, I'm assuming there is going to ease my pain. It's going to bring me pleasure. And it's going to give me. It's going to be the answers to my problems. 
Now, this is not a shot at music. I think music is a gift from God, and I think it has its purposes. Um, But when you're at your lowest, and the first thing you do is go to some of these idols instead of going to the Lord, you can see there's something wrong there in my relationship with God in in the midst of that situation. So ask yourself, when you're suffering, what do you quickly run to? Do you run to music? Do you run to maybe a TV show that kind of sets you at ease? Um, Do you distract yourself with maybe a book, a certain book or a certain magazine or a certain website? Um, Do you drink your sorrows away? Do you, you I I don't know, it could look in all kinds of ways. Try to spot out those idols in your life. Um, Maybe you don't think that you're worshiping or bowing down to these things, but at your lowest point, if you cry out to those things for help, then it might be an indication that you're running to false gods. Um, This is a response of escape, uh, turning to something other than God for relief. For a moment, it feels like we've escaped from our problems. Then we sober up find that nothing has changed and the cycle continues and this is always going to happen that whatever it is that you're going to or running to in the midst of your suffering whatever that thing is that's not god it's always going to fail you this is what happens with alcoholism sometimes people result into drinking heavily to kind of get the sorrows out of their mind but when they sober up all the all their pain is there waiting for them because that's a false god. It can't quite um, resolve the issue that that person has. So how do we escape? Sometimes we literally flee. There's days that I'm having a rough day at work, and the, the thing that comes to my mind is, ah, I would love to just hop in my car, fill the gas tank up, and just drive and just leave and say goodbye to, to all my relationships and goodbye to all my friends, goodbye, goodbye, Faith Baptist, and goodbye, you know, goodbye, everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm on my own. Don't call me. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I, I love Faith Baptist. But, you know, when you're suffering, you want to run away even from the people that love you. And you want to run away from even the people that are most closest to you. Sometimes we literally flee. I know a lot of people do that. We flee suffering through... Uh, in the way that I explained it, some people do it through drugs or alcohol. It's still fleeing, right? We flee a bad marriage through divorce. You've all seen it. How many people have just abandoned their family uh, because they just can't take the suffering? Uh, a difficult relationship through the silent treatment, right? For those of us who are, who are married, um, one of the ways that we can often deal with the suffering in the midst of that is giving our spouse the silent treatment, just being quiet and not dealing with it in that way. Sometimes we try to escape through distraction, like I mentioned. Some people prefer to just work and work and work. Um, sex is even a distraction from dealing with some deep issues that are, that are there, some imbalances in your appetite. Sex is an outlet for that. Uh, shopping, uh, you're going through some stuff, go to the mall, Come back to hubby, 
and you, you're there at home with like 10 bags and he's uh, looking at his account like you're, you're destroying this home um, some people go to food and um, they eat, through, eat as a way to distract themselves from the pain uh, entertainment as I mentioned before or, or physical appearance maybe you begin to just empower yourself by, by trying to focus a lot on your physical appearance as a way to kind of deal with all the other flaws. Sometimes it's simply fantasy. We create a world in our heads or everything goes away. Or excuse me, everything goes the way that we want it. And all these escapes will be initially thought to be a harmless excursion begins to take over our lives. And so how do we get into these bad habits? Uh, habits of fleeing to idols in the midst of our suffering. Well, it started when you first did it and then you did it again and you did it again and it becomes a habit in your life. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the power of habit. You start to see these things take over. We've invested in the empty promises of these false gods we're trusting. And so we avoid having to trust the real God and it's what the Bible calls idolatry. Right? God's people in the Old Testament did exactly this when they put their trust in Egypt instead of in God to protect them from the powerful Assyrian army. And you see this in Isaiah 30. I'll read it. You don't have to go there. But you see that their choice would prove devastating. I'll read it. It says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. And therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. I love that verse. And I uh, try to keep that one always before me every time I go through my own personal suffering. Again, that's Isaiah 30 verses 1 through three, actually one through seven, if you read that whole thing. But what's happening here? That God delivered Egypt, I'm excuse me, delivered uh, Israel from slavery. They begin to experience freedom, right? They, they no longer are bound to the slavery and the oppression that they felt when they were in Egypt. But now that they're with God, they begin to reminisce and they start to miss Egypt. And they start to go back. You see people sneaking back, trying to go back to Egypt. They prefer the tyranny that they were under when they were under Pharaoh's rule. Instead of uh, God's care and God's wisdom. And so the Lord is declaring here, ah, stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not my plan. Right? In other words, God is all wise and his instruction is better for you in the midst of suffering. When you think of how to, uh, how to ease your suffering, sometimes we look at God's way and we say, that's not really attractive. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't sound like that's going to help me. And it, 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 it doesn't appear that way most of the time because it, it seems so um, irrelevant. It seems so old. It seems so ancient. And, and you're living in a time where there, there's, uh, the world is offering all other kinds of solutions for your suffering, but yet God is crying out here, or he's declaring here that my ways are better. 
you know, it may not look that way, but trust me, right? And so he's, he's saying this about Israel. He's saying, stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. That they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. In other words, to, to put it in a modern context, you know, go ahead and try the world's ways, and you're going to see that the world's ways are going to fail you. Pharaoh, uh, the protection of Pharaoh will turn to your shame, and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt will turn to your humiliation. And I always try to remind myself every time I, I meditate on Isaiah 30, when I'm tempted in the midst of, the suffer, in the midst of suffering to turn to uh, distractions and idols from the world, which I'm prone to do, but I'm tempted to do that, I have to remind myself in the midst of that, uh, that it, it's really just a waste of time. If you're tempted to seek idols and seek all these other things to sort of heal your pain in the midst of suffering, you're just hitting reset and you're starting all over and it's just not worth taking that path. It's going to lead to uh, your shame and it's going to lead to your humiliation. Egypt's health, Egypt's help is worthless. Egypt's help is empty. Don't look back. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord in the midst of... Uh, in the midst of your suffering. I think this is a good place to end. Um, I'd rather not go over um, and not be able to finish the next part. Um, but I do want to uh, take advantage of the next, say, five minutes to uh, interact with you. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, what have you seen in your own life um, on how you've reacted in the midst of your suffering? What are some things that you've uh, experienced? I guess, yeah. Uh, I, I consider me, I consider other people, sometimes like, I think about this, uh, this year, right? Yeah. Year Yeah, that's, that's such a good, uh, good example. Um, and I'm just thinking, even while you were talking about how we try to uh, 
in a sense, insure ourselves, uh, insure ourselves, or, or, or protect ourselves in ways, and it's important to protect our, ourselves. Um, but but what you're alluding to is uh, a way of doing that that is this trusting of God, um, and I think I think that's that's very very good. I, you know, it's always going to look very different for every each each person considering. Uh, their situation, uh, considering all, all all these factors that are relevant to their their life, right? It's going to look different for everyone. Um, but the key here is our hearts, right? Are we relying on God? Um, are we are we setting up all these uh, ways of protection? Let's just say, um, whether it's pro- emotional protection or physical protection or whatever forms of protection that we. We we, um, we place in our life, uh, which is not wrong, right? We need to be responsible people, but are we doing these things with a heart that's not trusting the Lord, uh, His providence, His guidance? Are we not uh, meeting with the Lord as we think through some of these things? There's a way to do these things that are, in a, as I mentioned before, in, in a way that's kind of like a, a practical atheist, where sure we believe in God, but our practice is not. Um, one that acknowledges that God is there and that he's, he's with us and he's for us. Um, so that, that's such a good good point there. Um, Mark, I know you were going to say something. Um, I was just um, thinking that like a good one is what like, gets us out of that situation or family and emotion. Um, we also, what is our Savior in that? So yeah. uh, I would confess Caitlin knows sometimes you know, trying to get in a past quitting Mountain Dew yeah, it sounds funny, but we I realized that when I was quitting it, cutting yeah. it back, it was like it, it, when I frustrated, it was automatic to my mind. I need a drink. Yeah, it's not alcoholic. But right, right. I need a Mountain Dew. Right. And, you go, and I would joke with them. <laughs> and like, you're always driving me to drinking <laughs> Mountain Dew. But I realized, like, God, it's a comfort me. That's my quote unquote savior for the situation. I want to work as a comfort. Yeah. So you can blow that up. Like, Yeah, city and hold that and get a home. Okay. But not that they're bad inherently. Yeah, yeah. We can enjoy those things, but when you're running to only those moments. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. Absolutely. That's a great example. We can make an idol. Uh, and, and usually idols are good things that have have turned into ultimate things. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a great example. Yeah. God, 
good and be willing to remain in it as long as God wants to be there. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great how you say observation. Now let me let me just say one thing. You made a good point. Uh, you said that suffering is from God, and it is, right? We know that um, God is in full control, so everything that happens is according to His sovereign purposes. But I just want to kind of give you an example of something that I think would help kind of put things in, in its place. Let's just say. First and foremost, I want, I, want to, I want to say this, that you see in, particularly, let's just say, in the Psalms, that there are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers, songs, that are meant to, to uh, in a sense, communicate what's written there in, in the particular psalm to God. And a lot of those psalms are pleads to God to relieve me or the writer of the psalm of suffering. So the psalmist is saying there, God relieve me from this suffering. Now the question in the end of the day is, is that is the uh, is the uh, the author of that particular psalm is he in violation of, of or is he sinning when he asks the Lord to relieve him of a certain kind of suffering? Obviously not, right? Because that it's a Holy Spirit inspired uh, psalm. So what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that we are able to cry out to God in the midst of our suffering to relieve us from this pain. We're, we're even permitted to ask God to change his mind about something as we see demonstrated in Scripture. And that not be contradiction or a violation of those truths, the fact that God is sovereign. In other words... God is sovereign of your suffering, but he's also sovereign of your prayers as you respond to God and ask him to relieve you of those sufferings. So when we talk about God's uh, decree when it comes to suffering, we don't want to um, confuse that with human responsibility or how we ought to react in the midst of the suffering. So yes, suffering does come from God in the sense that he allows it and he uh, has predestined that to happen or that particular event. Even the most grossest ones, he's allowed to happen. But he's also communicated to us what the proper response should be in that. And so when when I said um, how to suffer wrong or how to suffer rightly, I don't mean that there is such thing as like a kind of suffering that God didn't mean to allow in, in, his, in his overall plan. What I mean is that there's a way that we can go through suffering where our reaction is wrong, it's sinful. And the way that we do that is when you complain to God, or in fact, um, I didn't get through all five, but the ones that I did point out are examples of how to suffer in a sinful way. So basically, um, Suffering wrongly, all I mean by that is how to go through suffering in a way that in, in a way that you react in a sinful manner. But just to affirm what you said, all suffering is permitted by God to, to fulfill his sovereign purposes. You know, we don't know what they are in those particular seasons. We know that he's doing all things for his glory. Um, so none of that is is contradictory to that reality, right? That God is sovereign even over the suffering. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's accurate. That's so on point. Yeah, yeah, amen. I have two things. Yeah. Uh, one is a statement and then the other is a question. I read um, 30, Isaiah 30, verse 18. It mm-hmm. says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord um, is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Would it be accurate to say it's how we wait on the Lord kind of thing? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's well put. Yeah. My question is, you stated for God to change his mind, but God doesn't change his mind. Right. So what's the difference between um, God relenting and changing his mind? Yeah, so um, yeah. So we know God in his essence, right? He, he can't change his mind. Uh, in fact, he, he, he's, he doesn't interact with the world in the, in the way that maybe humans interact with each other. So we know that that's clearly stated in scripture that God does not change his mind. He can't, he's not a man that he would change his mind. But as God relates to humanity, uh, and this is, this is important about, this is important to keep in mind as you read uh, scripture and you see how God interacts with, with, with man. Oftentimes words are used uh, that are clear and are probably more accurate, uh, I don't wanna say accurate, but more, uh, more human relation terms that are just, um, in a sense, analogies to the reality of our relationship with God. Um, so, so we have to understand things like relenting as because of what was going on, say, in the human realm, in the human responsibility realm, what was going on there, you see that man's relationship with God has changed in that particular event. Um, it, when you think, it's like, it's like when, when you think about the fact that God has, has his wrath upon you, and this is prior to you coming to Christ. When you come to Christ, his wrath is, is, is no longer on you because it's placed on Jesus Christ. But as we learn through scripture and even even our confessions, right? 
it's not until the moment of justification that the wrath of God is, is moved. So do we say that God changes mind at, at the moment of, of uh, justification? We would say no, but our relationship with him has changed. And so the language that you, that's often used in scripture um, helps us to see and understand our relationship with God. But when we talk about God in his essence, like metaphysically, um, we see other areas in scriptures that say the opposite, right? And it's not a contradiction. Because uh, you do have a verse in scripture that says that he relented. And then another verse that says, well, God doesn't change his mind. He's not a man. Is that a contradiction? No. Uh, we, can, uh, we can harmonize those two texts when we understand what exactly is being communicated in, those, in, those, in that context, right? But, yeah. And la- last question, by the way. suffering used as a tool for our sanctification. It's kind of like what our brother was saying, that um, you know, suffering de- is permitted by God. He allows these things to happen to us. It's coming from his, you know, it, it's being allowed according to God's decree. And we see it often, it, it, it is often given to us as a gift from God for, for the purpose of sanctification. So uh, that's a good point. I think if we had that in mind, uh, we, would, we would deal with suffering in a very different way, I think. Um, in a much more God-focused way and not, you know, pushing God aside from our mind. But anyway, great, great questions. I would love to interact more if you guys have any more questions, but I'll go ahead and end for the sake of time. Let me pray and we'll close out. Our Father, we thank you that um, you have shown us from your word um, reactions to suffering that are unbiblical and um, things that we are all prone to fall to um, and result in. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit that empowers us, that in the midst of suffering, uh, you can set our focus and our vision back on you. Lord, we have, to, we, we have to admit that often we don't call out to you and we choose our own ways on how to deal with our suffering. We ask that you would help us, Lord, that when we suffer, that we would be reminded to cry out to you, to come to you and not seek our idols not find ways to distract ourselves from you, but to, but to call upon you so that you would help us in the times of disparity. So help us, Lord. We know that we can't do this on our own, and it begins first with having humble hearts. So have your spirit, Lord, uh, shape our hearts and bring us down to humility so that we would depend on you more and not on ourselves. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.